doesn't matter because my brain is now full of country musics, music lyrics and different like jingles and things like this. Songs like this song. Marianne and Wanda were the best of friends all through their high school days. Both members of the 4-H club, both active in the FFA. After graduation, Marianne went out looking for a bright new world. Wanda looked all Does it, do people know this song? Did this did it come over on this side? Uh, bless you. Uh, so this song was very controversial when it was released in like the early 2000s. It's pretty controversial for, for a couple of, of, of reasons. But one of them is after, uh, after Marianne, uh, Marianne leaves and Wanda's with Earl, uh, it starts to talk about domestic violence in this sort of like cheeky sort of way, but it's a, it's a really like stark song. Um, and uh, Earl starts beating up Wanda and she ends up going to the police and that only makes him more mad and he beats her up so bad that she ends up in intensive care, okay? But then the other reason why this song is very controversial is the next part of the song. Oh, there we go. they kill Earl. That's, that's the other controversy. So uh, when this song was pretty popular, and again, every girl in my high school was listening to this song, there were moralists like myself that said, this is an evil song. You're glorifying murder. In fact, there were girls in my youth group that would listen to this song. You could hear them from a mile down the road, you know, with their windows rolled down, pulling into the church parking lot, singing along uh, to this song. And I would, you know, I would say, oh, how could you listen to this song? The Bible says you shouldn't murder. Jesus even says if you're angry at someone, you murder them in your heart. I rebuke you for listening to this very, very catchy song. <laughs> but I think that I was pretty off base in my application of Matthew 5 to this song. Uh, because the song, the, this passage isn't just about murder. It's really about anger, Right. Matt, uh, Jesus adds this bit about if you're, if you're so angry with someone uh, that it's tantamount to murdering them. And that's, that's pretty, I don't know, I think it's pretty surprising. But we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And we've learned a little bit about what this sermon is all about and how it's structured and what we can expect from, from uh, passages like this. So we know, for instance, that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, right? He didn't come and say, the ten, the ten Commandments no longer matter. That doesn't apply to you. Now we have a new commandment. It's more about anger, right? We also know that Jesus isn't saying the Ten Commandments just weren't spiritual enough, weren't moral enough. So, so I'm going to give you something even deeper, all right? This is like, like morality 2.0, all right? This is for the elite moral people. Then you can sort of attain to this. Instead, I think during this passage, he's getting us to focus on what's going on in our heart, to focus on murder or adultery or uh, even good things, as we'll later see as we work our way through Matthew 5, things like keeping an oath and repaying justice, to focus on these external things 
is, and only the visibility of sin misses the deeper part of our relationship with God, how we obey and love him and how we obey and love his law. The other thing I think we need to remember is, is this is wisdom literature. He's pointing out how we live naturally in a world, how we can be humans in this world, and there are natural consequences to that. And he's telling us that anger naturally poisons our soul. Anger in itself is destructive. It poisons us from the inside out because it separates us from God, who is our life force, our sustainer of everything, which is obviously the worst possible scenario. But in order to get into that, I think we have to ask, what exactly is anger? What are we talking about when we talk about anger? Because I don't think anger in itself is a sin. I don't think it's sinful just to be angry. It's possible to have the feelings of anger without sinning. For instance, Paul in Ephesians says, in your anger, do not sin. So obviously it's, it's possible. But that means that there must be some sort of spiritually healthy version of, of anger. And like any spiritually healthy emotion, it ought to be an emotion or a state of being or a way that we're approaching the world that actually directs us to God and our dependency on him because he is in control of everything. So sometimes we'll talk about like a righteous anger or something like this is, the, this is a good type of anger because it points out an injustice or something that's wrong in the world. And that's probably true. But again, this righteous anger ought to be something that directs us to God. We can see some examples in the Bible, although I think sometimes when people use examples in the Bible of anger or even Jesus's anger, sometimes I question whether it counts as anger or, you know, what's going on. But here is an example where uh, Mark tells us that Jesus is angry uh, because of what the Pharisees are saying and doing. Well, one thing I think we should notice is that in this type of anger, it's mixed with a, a, a deep compassion for the Pharisees. His anger isn't directed just, you know, at the Pharisees and, and, and dehumanizing them and seeing them as, angle, uh, as evil. He really cares about them deeply. And ultimately, what ends up happening because of these feelings that Jesus is having, he heals someone. There's a type of, of uh, deep metaphysical reconciliation that happens because of this. But... I also think that this type of anger, whether it's righteous anger or the anger that doesn't count as sinning, I actually think it's pretty quite rare. In fact, I would go so far as to say that when we're angry and someone tells us, hey, you're a little angry, and we try to justify why we're angry, we're probably not in the realm of this like nice, non-sinning anger. More often than not, I think our anger is sinful because it's, it becomes self-focused. And it doesn't spurn us to trust deeper in God. It's a selfish anger that seeks to elevate or restore ourselves at the cost of others. One of my favorite uh, philosophers is a woman uh, named Martha Nussbaum. And one of the things that she often does in philosophy is she goes and looks at what the ancients have said, often ancient Romans, and say, well, how did people first originally think about this concept that we talk about in modern times? But one of the things that's interesting is... We, we don't have to look that far back because uh, one of the things she says is all Western philosophers who write about anger concur that the angry person wants some type of payback and that this is a conceptual part of what anger is. This is the, the general cause of anger I know in my house, this sort of payback wish, right? That usually when I hear my kids fighting, Theo fighting with Evelyn, it's, she took my toy, right? There's something very physical that happened. 
I'm mad because something, someone took something from me and I won't be satisfied until it's restored. Or I won't be satisfied until I'm paid back in some way. So if this is sort of the skeleton version of what anger is, this payback wish, as she sometimes calls it, then I think it makes a lot of sense when we start to put some like flesh on top of it and sort of see it in real life, right? When someone says something unkind to us, or something, someone says something unkind about us, it takes away our sense of dignity. It takes away the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we expect other people to think about us, or hope that other people will think about us. Something's been taken away. When someone lies to you, they've taken away your, a sense of your relationship with the truth, right? Your, your sense of, of reality in a way. What does the liar owe you in that instance? They owe you the truth. Even in like, I think, small situations, right? Someone passes us on the motorway in a really aggressive way and we feel that sort of rise of anger. What have they taken away from us? Maybe a sense of safety, maybe a sense of pride, right? I should be driving faster than that person. Maybe that's just me. But I don't think that recognizing that this wrong has occurred or someone's taken something away from us is necessarily the, the sinful part of anger. Wanting or feeling like, like you need to be paid back, I don't even know if that counts as anger. That could just be a recognition. For instance, you could mourn the fact that someone has taken away from you, or you could just have a sort of like, that was weird, right? Just recognizing it isn't anger is what I'm saying. Anger is when you start to focus your feelings on the person rather than the thing that's happened, I think. Wanting or feeling like you need to be paid back in some way. That's when it starts to turn. But really, I think, is when it gets to the point where you think, if this other person experiences loss as well, that's how I'm going to feel paid back. This is how Nussbaum says, says it. She says, anger diverts one's thoughts from the real problem to something in the past that cannot be changed. It makes one think that progress will have been made if the betrayer suffers. So you're not even mad at the act. You're not even mad at the thing that was taken away. You're mad at the person and you want them to experience some type of loss as well. So you call your brother or sister Raka, right? You look at them with contempt and you say, maybe even just in your heart, you fool. I think it's easiest to notice this thing when we sort of have an outsized anger compared to what happens when we blow up and we freak out over something small. Maybe someone doesn't text us back as quickly as we want. It's not about the text. It's about them taking away your standing. It might seem in that moment like there's, they're, they're saying, you're not important enough for me to text you back. So we're going, fine. See if I text you back quickly next time. Maybe that's, that's how I'll feel better is if you feel a little bit of pain. But these sort of small instances of anger, I don't think that's really what Jesus is talking about. I don't think that's the, the part that we struggle with as well. I think these are the things that tend to fester and get bigger and bigger and bigger. When I was about 12 or 13 years old, my, uh, my biological father was pulled over for drink driving, and in the boot of his car, they found enough drugs that they could prosecute him for possession of illegal narcotics with intent to sell. It was a big deal. And I found out later that there were some detectives in the county that had been trying to build this case, and they were finally able to, to bring him down. So most of my high school years, my biological father was in prison. And I can say this with all honesty, it didn't really bother me that much. I wasn't angry at him. I was, I was embarrassed, and maybe I was disappointed. I was definitely embarrassed because I was a teenager, and I didn't want anyone to know about this. 
But I wasn't angry. I didn't feel like he had taken anything away from me. I still had my mom and my stepdad and this sort of like normal, like good little family. And I, I didn't have any ill will really towards my biological dad at that, at that time. Well, a few years later, towards the end of my time in high school, my stepdad got pulled over for drink driving. And I was enraged because this was the man that was supposed to keep me safe. This was the man that was supposed to make my family normal. And he had taken all of that away. I couldn't look at him. I couldn't be in the same room as him. It just, it filled me with this rage that I, I could not even express. And it took years, years to confront and develop and figure out what was going on and how I had applied my anger towards my biological dad towards my dad in that moment. This is the type of anger that festers. This is the type of anger that I think starts to poison the soul because there's no way to get back what's been taken from us in those moments. When the anger is that deep, when the hurt is that deep, when someone takes something that important away from you, you there's no way to reconcile that. So the only way that we feel like we can deal with it is if we get even with them or if Maybe if we don't get even, what if we don't get revenge? They can feel that sort of pain as well. This is how Nussbaum talks about it. She says, she wonders, why would an intelligent person think that inflicting pain on the offender assuages or cancels her own pain? The payback idea is deeply human, but fatally flawed as a way of making sense of the world. I think it's amazing. So Martha Nussbaum is not, is not a, a confessing Christian, but I think it's amazing that she uses the, the words fatally flawed to talk about this way of thinking about the payback question, we'll talk about this way of thinking about anger. She says it, it poisons us from the inside to the point that it's destructive to death. Why does it do this? Because when we look at the other person, the offender, with that much anger, we start to dehumanize them. We see them as the other, not as people made in the image of God, not as our brother or sister, not as our dad, but as someone who's offended us and deserves to be taken down. And that, I think, robs us of our own humanity. We saw this with Cain, right? What was taken from Cain? His standing in front of God, his own sense of worth? And how did he try to get it back? By, you know, making a better offering next time? No, he turned it all on his brother. The payback wish, this type of anger, it dehumanizes others. When we're angry, it's hard to even see them as a human anymore sometimes. But I think as humans, we're pretty clever at sort of hiding this, right? So maybe we can justify it and say, oh, this is righteous anger, this is good anger, I was hurt so bad I deserve to feel this way. But sometimes we can mask it with a whole bunch of different emotions. So remember how moralistically above the, so they used to be called the Dixie Chicks, now they're just called the Chicks. Uh, remember how moralistically above the, the Chicks I was at the time? Well, I was also really into emo punk rock music. And if you have any if you have any knowledge of emo punk rock music from the late 90s to early 2000s, there's a lot of very violent lyrics, often directed towards women. Uh, and during this time of my life, uh, I'd recently gone through like a silly little high school breakup or whatever, but me and some of my other friends would trade some of these lyrics. It became sort of a game to find the most like outrageous sort of lyrics and we'd write them down and we'd like give them to each other and we'd snicker and all that kind of stuff. Well, one of my friends, her name was Adrian. She came to me and she said, 
I find the fact that you're, you're trading these lyrics, this is what, they're, what they're, some of these lyrics look like. So some of them are sort of cheeky, right? Like the weather's getting better by the hour, like near me, but I hope it rains there all the time. But some of them are really, really dark. Have another drink and drive yourself home. I hope there's ice on all the roads. You can think of me when you forget your seatbelt. Some of them aren't even trying to be clever. I hope you choke and die. That's just, I mean, that doesn't take any clever, but I'm not gonna leave that on the screen. But Adrian came to me and she said, I am so shocked that you guys would like write these lyrics and trade them around because the implication is that you're so mad at your ex that you hope she chokes and dies. Like that hurt, she, I remember she was like, that hurts me. I'm friends with you and your ex. That hurts me to hear you, to see you say that, to see you do that. And I was like, it's just a harmless joke. We're just joking around. She said, it's not a joke to me. I think she was right. Even though I didn't feel that rage, there was something going on, right? My ex, the exes of my friends had taken something from us. And our silly sort of way to feel good about that is to sort of fantasize in a distant way, like silly way, about them being hurt. So I think I deserved to be rebuked in that way. Now, Matt, I don't think Matthew 5 is, is about like pop lyrics and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think that the point is like interpreting these songs in a certain way. I think the point is, is looking at Matthew 5 and realizing that it's not just about murder on the surface. It's not just about what we see when we sin, but it's about my heart when I let anger empower my own sinful inclinations about having control over my life when it seems like people are taking that away from me. But what do we do with this? I think thinking about anger in this way, one good thing that it does is it reminds us that we're sinners because we all are gonna struggle with anger. But I don't think that's the entire point. I don't think Jesus is only piling on us to make us feel bad and say, oh look, you think that you're moral because you don't murder, but you're just as bad because you're an angry person. I think there should be a call to repentance and a call to recognize who we are in that, and that's a good thing. But more than that, I think we should understand what Jesus is telling us as, as love and grace. That Jesus in love and grace is pointing out the reality that there's a deep relationship between our feelings towards others and our communing with God. You can't love God and hate your brother. Jesus says that in, in the Gospel of John. Cain demonstrates that when he kills his brother. I learned that lesson when I was rebuked by Adrian. I can't love and depend God while I'm harboring even a silly, petty anger at one of my ex-girlfriends. But in this wisdom is also guidance about how to live, which I think is amazing because Jesus doesn't say, hey, just don't be angry. Control your emotions. He gives us wisdom about what to do with this anger when it happens. And again, I think in his graciousness, he lets us know as sinners how to be more human and how to be more faithful in our obedience to God, even while dealing with these complex, difficult, interpersonal relationships with other sinners, sometimes the people who are closest to us. And again, he tells us to pursue reconciliation in verse 23 and 24. And I think if we zoom out on the New Testament and we think about Jesus' life in total, we can see how this reconciliation works in the way that he lived, but especially his work on the cross. And it's all about forgiveness. Forgiveness, not stoicism, not controlling your anger, is the antidote. 
He doesn't say, just be less emotional. He shows us how to live. He says, I mean, look, think, consider Jesus on the cross. This is Jesus who hates sin. He hates death. And when he's experiencing this at the hands of other people, he says, Father, forgive them. And of course, it's true for us too. In our sin, we know that Jesus forgives us. Romans 8 says that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And then Paul says, in that death, we have the redemption through his blood as the, the means of the forgiveness of our sin. So it's not just that Jesus is a great moral example for how to be more forgiving. Jesus is the means by which we have the power to be forgiving people. But if we just reflect on forgiveness for a second, it's per, I think it's pretty astounding. I don't think forgiveness makes a lot of sense in this world. I think being angry makes more sense. When someone takes something from you, I think that is a more logical thing to, to think. Like, I want to get something back. But then we enter into this realm of absurdity when sin enters the picture. And forgiveness, I think, is the supernatural, the transcendent, the otherworldly antidote to this conundrum that we find ourselves in when we have the sin of anger. Getting payback, getting eye for an eye also doesn't make sense. But being able to forgive is a blessing from God because it restores our soul and it gives us spiritual nourishment. It allows us to reconcile with others and be in this worshipful, worshipful relationship with God. So true forgiveness, when we actually let go of the thing that people have taken from us, I think is only possible through God's grace. So first of all, anytime anyone forgives, whether a Christian or not, I think that's God's grace because all people are made in the image of God. And all of us have the capability to, to mirror God and imitate God into our life in, to some degree. But real saving grace, the grace that comes from the forgiveness of sin, I think that shows up when we trust in God's sovereignty and providence and remember his mercy to the extent that it frees us up to actually let go of the payback wishes. When we actually forgive what people have taken from us. When we take the forgiveness that we receive from God and we extend it to others, we're participating in God's saving grace and the way that he shares the gospel with other people. But I think most importantly for our own lives, God empowers us through the Holy Spirit to conform more and more to his image, which includes the greater and more perfect capacity to forgive others, especially when they've done terrible, grievous things to us. So in this way, forgiveness brings us back to Christ and allows us to reconcile with others. And it actually makes us happier, more content people. Remember, we talked about wisdom literature is all about how to live into your, your completeness, your wholeness as a human. And uh, one of the, the theologians that I really like, we actually read this passage, uh, a few of us who are reading uh, Boving together this week. He says, all joy, peace, uh, all joy and peace, all certainty of communion with God rests on this forgiveness a benefit no mind can fully comprehend or believe. Paganism could never grasp this. Picturing the gods as human with passions meant that when insulted, the gods needed to be appeased by human gifts and prayers. The gods needed a payback wish as well. But Bavink agrees with me. Forgiveness doesn't really make sense in our life. But God doesn't have to make sense. God doesn't have a payback wish because he's perfect. And because our relationship with God is based on the forgiveness of our sins, we don't need a payback wish either. 
because we know as Christians that all joy and peace comes from our communion with God. This is what Jesus is calling us into. He says, leave your gifts there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brothers and sisters. Forgive them, then come and worship. This is a life of wisdom that's rooted in God's grace. It's the promise of a better relationship with God, but it's also a promise of a better relationship with those around us. Obviously, the person who offended us, but the other people in our life too, because reconciliation is not just about that act and that one person. When we're angry, that fuels our relationship to other people as well when we're harboring that anger. Anger towards one person bleeds into all of our other relationships, right? My anger towards my ex when I was in high school affected my relationship with my other guy friends. It made us into toxic dudes. I don't know. My relationship also with the other Christian sisters in my life at that time was affected too, right? Adrian was like, this is hurting me. But likewise, I think the act of forgiveness is a balm for those other relationships as well. So think about this. It's Father's Day. I could not be a good dad if I was still angry at my dads. What if I never forgave my dads? What would it look like for me to try to raise my own kids? I might, for instance, try to use my kids as a means to restore what I thought was taken from me. I could try to raise them to be the type of people that would never hurt me, that would never let me down and put all that pressure on them. I could try to maybe overcorrect and say, well, my dads were rubbish and I'm going to be such an awesome super dad that I smother and I suffocate them. Or sadly, what's more common, I could take my anger out on them. I think it's only by God's grace that these types of cycles are broken. Reconciling with my dads hasn't just helped me with my relationship with them. It's helped my relationship with God. It's helped my relationship with my kids. And it helps me point my kids towards God because I don't have that barrier between me and God, that anger that I had before. Now, these are not the points of forgiveness. This is not the purpose of forgiveness. I think the purpose of forgiveness is our restored relationship with God. But these are the benefits that wisdom literature points us to that we experience now in this life. And I want to end with one more of these benefits. What happens when we become forgiving people? I think forgiveness as a community, especially when it's expressed in a community, is a very missional idea as well. Because if forgiveness doesn't make sense in this world, it's something that points people to the real and living God in our life right now. So I'm going to end with a video clip, and I don't know if, uh, if you've seen this before. Uh, this happened a, a couple years ago, but it's a newscaster in Egypt. I'm pretty sure he's Muslim, and he's responding to an interview with a Christian woman whose husband was killed by terrorists, and he's responding to the forgiveness that he sees uh, in this story. So I want us to watch this clip and reflect about the benefits of God's grace, including forgiveness, in our life now. And then Emily's going to come up and lead us in a short time of confession. أقباط مصر 
مصنوعين من فولاذ اقباط مصر مئات السنين بيتحملوا كوارث ومصايب كتيره القبط المصري يعشق تراب بلده القبط المصري يتحمل كل شيء عشان وطنه وايه كميه التسامح اللي عندكم دي لو اعدائكم يعرفوا قد ايه انتم متسامحين بجد ما كانش حد يصدق ده انا لو ابويا والله ما اقول كده ابدا الناس دي عندها كميه تسامح عن حق عن عقيده